and welcome back to another episode of the O3C podcast coming to you from two old men from O3C Games. I am Jonathan Dunn and joining me on my Jet Setting Odyssey is Chris Dow. You've got to laugh when you fall off a sofa. You've got to laugh when you, when you fall off a cliff. And we are travelling around the world in 80 games. Announcement! Announcement! Before we dive into our latest adventure, we want to point you in the direction of a few things that will help us out if you want to support us here at O3C Games. Firstly, please do find us on social media and follow us. We are at O3C Games on everything. Secondly, share a link to the podcast or share one of our posts on your socials. Thirdly, head over to O3C.Games and sign up to the newsletter for weekly gaming updates and absurdities and also click on the join link to become part of the O3C Discord server. Fourthly, and finally, if you want to support us in a pecuniary sense, that is by chucking some coffers our way to help keep the lights on here at the O3C Chateau, you can go to <laughs> patreon.com slash O3C games and do just that. Bon chance et bon voyage. <laughs> <laughs> so we are back. We are back. What a great month we've had. Last month, we went to Denmark. And guess yes. what I did last month? I went to Denmark. In real IRL, life, yeah. no less. And it was great. I played zero video games while I was there because I was so ill with a horrible cold. And uh, every every minute I wasn't making the most of being there with my family, I was making the most of being deeply unconscious. <laughs> I had aspirations of at least playing Subway Surfers or something like that on my phone in Copenhagen. I was going to do and do a thing, but I didn't. Oh, it let us down. I know. Although I did see somebody playing Subway Surfers on their mobile phone in Denmark. Didn't film it. It was a child. <laughs> what do you want me to... Oh, do you mind me putting you on the internet? <laughs> but this month, we're off to somewhere new. I'm not going to go here, IRL, although it would be nice. We are off to Ooh. South Korea, and I'm, yeah. I'm really excited to dive into the gaming history of South Korea and talk about a couple of games that have come out of some studios based there. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be fantastic, but we've got a month of gaming to catch up on first. Here are the headlines. <laughs> So, some gaming snippets from me this month. I had a sudden hankering the other day to play Test Drive Unlimited, which is an open-world racing game set across the real Hawaiian island of Oahu. Oh, hey! And the only reason I even know about this game is <laughs> because I played a lot of it on the 360 when I was at university, and I hadn't really thought about it for the following 15 years. It's one of those memories that's like, loved it for two weeks and then literally never thought about it again. But it just appeared in my head. And after a bit of Googling, I found it is basically abandonware these days so you can't really buy it on anything you can't buy it legally anywhere but the pc build is still quite miraculously maintained and being added to almost daily by a dedicated fan community i always find stuff like that absolutely mad so a quick little torrent download later the game was configured patched transferred to my steam deck and it basically runs perfectly you know it's just something nice to dip back into it is nothing special other than it being a racing game to play for an hour here and there but it was kind of weirdly nostalgic for me at least because i did put a lot of time into it for a small window next up being in a weird headspace recently i found myself as ever defaulting to playing tetris you can't say too much more about tetris than i haven't already but scrolling through retro achievements online for sets i may wish to beat i played through the entirety of wonder swan tetris 
from Bandai's short-lived Japanese exclusive handheld. Oh, yeah. Quite a nice little version. And I went back and replayed EA's PSP version as well of the Tetris series. And I really liked that one. It was the same version that was on the PlayStation 3 as well. It's one of my favorite non-Nintendo entries, I suppose, over the years. Sure. And now that it's got a little achievement set, gave me goals to work towards. And that was just a nice evening to kind of take my mind off stuff, focus on Tetris. And that's it. Again, not too much to add here, really. Finally, still working through the Amiga library in my emulation setup, I have had a fun time exploring a few games that I had never heard of, just because there was such a big library to dig through. Yeah. I played a bizarre tie-in game to the 1990s film Arachnophobia. <laughs> <laughs> I did, you know, the stuff that was coming out yeah. is bananas. You are patrolling a little town, you're entering houses to dispose of arachnid foes, like a kind of exterminator type thing. I've never even seen the film. Maybe that follows the plot a bit. Again, with the licensed tie-ins, I played an almost impenetrably strange captain planet game brilliant and you play as each of the planeteers in turn every character has their own kind of themed attack come ability like throwing seeds that double as both weapons as well as like growable climbable platforms oh that's quite clever it's really hard doesn't play very well but it was an interesting concept at least to essentially say there are different game types for each character they all play quite differently lastly i played a sort of doom clone on the amiga again called death mask Mm. 10 out of 10 for atmosphere and grubby pixel art but a real one out of 10 for playability. <laughs> ah, the old Facebook 2000. <laughs> exactly. The game was built in this case around a one button joystick, meaning that there is no precision. Precision is out the window. You move around maps in basically just north, south, east and west with, with real like 90 degree chunks turning. Wow. And it's just not very fun at all. So it looked great. Was really excited to play something weird and wonderful. Wasn't that wonderful. It was weird though. So does <laughs> that. What you've been playing in Dribs and Drabs? Well, firstly, I picked up the playdate again as I was doing yes. a few bits of travelling over the last few weeks and wanted to join in on what everyone seems to be talking about on TikTok. You're welcome, Panic. <laughs> uh, and I, of course, sampled Root Bear, which was yes. a lot of fun. And I took a few of the other new catalogue games for a spin, including the remarkably impressive P Racing. Yeah. Uh, but pretty much all of my playtime was reserved for two games. The Picross alike sketch solve share, which yep. was great. Although I came to a bit of a halt with one puzzle that appears to be unsolvable without some guesswork, which there shouldn't be in a Picross yeah. game. It's possible I missed something, but I did try it like at least three times <laughs> from scratch yeah. to see. But I, I kept coming to the same point. I will go back to it because I probably just needed a break and it might just be like a one off design flaw but i don't know but fortunately i got my logic puzzle kicked elsewhere in the form of the truly excellent medial which you mentioned last month love it it is brilliant such a good simple rule set and it is incredible how much variety you can get out of just a few icons on a really small five by five grid yeah and it's great and it's just been really fun to learn a new set of logic puzzle rules and stretch my brain out in a slightly different direction Next headline, over on the Switch, I picked up a few games in the Black Friday eShop sale. Firstly, a game called When the Past Was Around, which is a nice little puzzle game, which is very reminiscent of Florence, which is a a beautiful, brilliant little puzzle game, which is available on everything. I highly recommend it. This game is a bit more emphasis on the puzzles rather than like a purely interactive emotional story, which Florence did just, just so well. It's less effective here because it's not a unique experience since playing Florence, but it does do the same trick well, which is articulate a certain feeling that is very difficult 
to articulate. Yeah. I wasn't that fussed on like the emotional story at the heart of it, but I've been feeling a little bit emotionally numb anyway recently. So it might just be that or yeah, might resonate with some people a, a lot more, but it's a fun enough puzzle game. It's got like escape room sort of style point and click puzzles. And I've also now started playing another similar puzzle game called Lost in Play, which is home to some stunning illustration and animation that makes it look and feel like you're playing through a, a lovely children's TV show or a, a you mm. know a little children's book. It's, it's it's really, really nice. Other game I picked up is a platform game called Grapple Dog. Oh, yeah. It's got that yeah. same outline-heavy GBA-inspired aesthetic that you mentioned the other week in Daily Daddish and yes. uh, the, the other Daddish games. Yeah, chunky. Uh, you play as a little dog who can grapple on certain surfaces and you have to get to the end of a number of really quite challenging levels, finding collectibles along the way. It's not hugely original, but it is very, very well made, even if it doesn't quite scratch the itch for me. It doesn't have that like fast, responsive, fluid control of the games I, I sort of like in that sort of vein, like Super Meat Boy or Celeste or Eterna Noctis. But it's diverting enough and a nice change of pace to other things I've got going on. Final headline for me is that I have dusted off my 3DS and started a fresh playthrough of The Legend of Zelda A Link Between Worlds because I will be a season-long guest on the upcoming season from the brilliant Chat of the Wild podcast. So if you want to hear our commentary as we play through every inch of that brilliant little game, do search for Chat of the Wild on your podcast catcher of choice. Subscribe and stay tuned because we will be starting that very, very soon. Nice. Before we talk about anything a bit more in-depth, should we talk about the new Steam Deck? The OLED yeah! Steam Deck? Yeah, mine arrived this morning, so oh, I am... Oh, uh... you're in for a bloody treat! <laughs> Since we last recorded, this brand new machine has been stealth announced, put up for sale, and has now been delivered. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's bizarre, obviously, now doing these episodes slightly less frequently. We wouldn't have had that gap before. It would have been like, oh, did you hear about that? And then a few weeks later, maybe it would have turned up. Yeah. But this has been... A remarkably quick turnaround, I feel like, for Valve to say, oh, yeah, there is this new thing. And then it basically be shipping a week and a half later. Mm. When it was first advertised, I sort of saw a headline when I was doing something else. And I immediately went on record in a text to you saying, I do not need a new Steam Deck. Yeah. And I dutifully (laughs) responded saying, if it makes you feel any better, I will certainly not be getting one. (laughs) And then by the time I got home that evening, like I think I was at a band practice. In George's words, I broke my own fastest record for flip-flopping on a hardware purchase (laughs) because the same evening I was reading more about the kind of bigger upgrades in the new machine that I hadn't really seen in the initial headline. And I was saying to her, I think think I'm probably going to pre-order one of these. And she was Mm. like, I knew you would, so just... Just do it. Stop Stop pretending that you're not. <laughs> like, just <laughs> just own the decision and find the money and do it. What was the one feature, aside from obviously the OLED screen, what was the one feature that made you go, actually, yeah, no, that would be nice? I, I don't think it was a specific feature. It was knowing that this is obviously, this is a mid-gen refresh kind of thing. You know, it's, mm. it's the equivalent of like the PS4 Pro when we got that or whatever letters they appended to the Xbox One last generation when the machine got a bit bigger and better and boxier. Mm. It's that kind of thing. And those refreshes sometimes feel quite underwhelming. Like we've just got the PS5 slim. There is no tangible difference to the machine internals in that case. So I've got no interest. But if they'd said, oh, it's, you know, it's a bit quieter or it runs a little bit better or something, I Mm. still would have struggled to justify that, I think, for PS5. The Steam Deck, when it first was announced way, way, way back when, I remember like having a chat with you on the podcast thinking like, yeah, it sounds interesting, but I was really struggling to know if I would use it because I 
was genuinely unsure if me being like an obsessive physical games collector for years and years, me being quite like anti-PC and the way I played games as well, I didn't always like the fact that it's like, oh, there's a different experience if you want a bit more performance or you want a bit more like graphical fidelity or whatever. I liked the idea of a console game just being, here's experience, put it in, that's what you get. Yeah. And all these things I was like, oh, I just don't know if it's for me. And then when I got the Steam Deck after having to wait for a very long time, it has transformed the way I play games yeah. to a point that I never expected it to. And it's not hyperbole. I do exaggerate a lot of the time, but it is not hyperbole to say that I've played the Steam Deck probably every single day of my life since it arrived. Yeah. And as soon as I saw these incremental things being like, oh, you know, the, the screen's a lot nicer and the refresh rates are a lot better and the colors are a lot more vibrant. Oh, it's HDR. Oh, this is a bit, it's a bit quieter as well. The fans are better. It's just a little bit lighter. Oh, there's more storage for the same price. It's like the amount of small upgrades. I was like, no, this is more than just saying it's the PlayStation 4 you had, but there's a minor difference. Yeah. You know, because in the case of that as well, when I bought my PS4 Pro, it's like actually some games are running worse because they're now targeting <laughs> a resolution it cannot handle. And it sounds like a fucking jet because yeah. it just, it didn't have the cooling for it either. Whereas with the Steam Deck, it's like every part of it is an improvement. There is nothing is a step back. Every bit yeah. of it is better than it was, including bits that, again, I didn't realize at first, but when I started reading, it's like the touchscreen's more responsive. The trackpads feel better. Yeah, and the power button is orange. Yeah, the power button's orange. That's better. You know, all these little things suddenly made me say like, no, I think I, I do need this because I use it so much as it is. Mm. It's not any one feature. It's just, I will have a better time in all of the things I do. Yeah. And even if I'm not playing it primarily handheld, because I, a lot of the time I'm still playing games docked, probably... 80% of the time on the Steam Deck. I still just think I just want the best possible way of doing all these things. It's just such a lovely yeah. machine. I mean, I as soon as I saw that it was it was quieter, that was a real yeah, yeah. that was a real yeah. thing for me. Because real boon. Yeah. I mean, it's I, and I've said this on the show before, like if there's a choice of, of where I get games, even if the game's gonna look better and perform better on the Steam Deck, I'd still rather get it on the Switch because yeah. it's quiet and the OLED screen. Yeah. And this totally wins that argument now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden I'm like, actually, uh, if, if I can play it in bed and not scare my wife, then uh, <laughs> that's that's great, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and like something like Eterna Noctis, the reason why I got that on the PS5 was because it's such an oled game. It would look yeah. so good on the OLED, but I knew the Switch port was naff. Yeah. And I'm not going to just play it in handheld on the Steam Deck. I may as well play it on a bigger screen. Yeah. And now I'm downloading it and I'm going to play it again so I can play it handheld OLED. Of course. The other day, I rebought Stray, you know, the cat game. Oh, yeah. Because I've got it sitting on the shelf of the PS5. It's the game that deleted my save or corrupted my oh, save yeah. when me and Georgia were playing. And it really just pissed me off and I never went back to it. Yeah. And I thought, oh, it's quite dark, isn't it? It's a lot of dark in that game. I bet that looked good on the OLED. <laughs> yeah. Fucking hell, it does look good on the OLED. I'll oh, tell really? you that. Oh, it man. does look good on the OLED. And it plays really well. I was not sure how the performance would be because it's a newish game yeah you know there's still times when the steam deck obviously is not as powerful as a playstation 5 so it's not gonna have the same sort of grunt it looks great it looks great and i played tetris effect as one of the first games i put on because i knew it was like all soupy black backgrounds bright lights within two minutes it was like it's worth the 500 quid (laughs) it is is absolutely worth the 500 quid just to play this again and be as excited as i was the first time with vr the first time the switch 
every time I pick that game up, it's like, yeah, it's the best game I've ever played. And it, it takes yeah. so little to make me like yeah. remember that. <laughs> you know? I know you don't really play games in the same way I do, whereas yeah. you, you you really sit and, and, and play one game. But, and I don't I don't mean that as a I don't mean that as like a as a sledge there, but for me I'm thinking oh what, what's going to be the game I play first on the Steam Deck? Yeah. For you you've probably played about twenty already. Yeah, yeah, I've jumped all over the place. You know, whereas I'm thinking like oh you know yeah of course I'm gonna I've, I've downloaded Dark Souls three so I can see see what that looks like. Yeah. So I know that will look really really nice, and I've got Returnal downloaded because I'm still on a bit of a quest to get that running mm. really nicely on Steam Deck. But then I have bought a game that I thought oh that looks really good. That could be really, really nice to play on the the Ola deck. There's a new Metroidvania called Worldless, and it looks really, really good. It looks Ooh. really fast. It, apparently, it's got like turn-based combat in it. I don't know, but it looks really good. It's had good reviews, and I was like, that'll look good. And it's about 14 quid or something. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I've got that downloading alongside 500 gig of something else. Yeah. yeah. If anyone is on the fence about the Steam Deck, if you've got you know an LCD model, you don't need the upgrade necessarily. It's one of those things that it's like you could still buy the LCD model because it's cheaper now as well. You know, Valve have discounted the ones they have. It's still an amazing value proposition. I would still highly recommend it just as a device. I think the Steam Deck is probably the best piece of gaming hardware I've ever bought for me personally and the things I enjoy doing with it. It's just, if you do have a chance to play the OLED version, it is better. Yeah. <laughs> like, I didn't want to be the one saying that because equally, like I said, when it was first announced, I was like, nope, just a screen. Don't need the screen. I play on the TV most of the time. Don't need that. But once I started reading into it, I was like, oh, I don't think, I don't think I can not. And now that I've had it in the hand, it's like, I, I definitely can't go back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It's, it's lovely. It's lovely. Yeah. What are you buying? What are you playing? Let me start with my final report on Fay Farm, the Ooh. fantasy life farming sim game that I had started last month on the Switch. I've now hung up my hoe and rake on the game and did manage to roll credits just on the cusp of me getting very bored with it. Uh, (laughs) I did generally have a really nice time playing most of it, though, to be fair. Like the gameplay is nice and simple. The mood is very cozy and it's a really accomplished game with a lot of content. But I just think the balance wasn't quite there to keep all areas of the game interesting throughout. So whereas something like Stardew Valley, which let's not forget, made by one man, but it's refined within an inch of its life over many, many, many years. Stardew Valley somehow manages to juggle so many different elements and keep them all engaging, no matter how many dozens of hours you've plumbed into the game. But in Fae Farm, after a bit, you realise you don't have to worry about farming the seasonal varieties of crops or cooking dishes or crafting 90% of the things in the game because you don't need to do any of that stuff to progress the game. Yeah. And it's always a bit of a faff to get all of the items you need to craft stuff. So you just forget about it. And it's a whole area of the game that starts to then just stagnate. So even though I fields all crafted with different soil types and all the different apparatus to manufacture all the different goods I may need, they're all just sitting empty and dormant by the end. Instead of like reaching the apex of your farm life in something like Stardew Valley, where you've got like carefully cultivated farms growing all manner of amazing crops backed up by a processing system to make the most of all those ingredients to then like integrate that into part of your daily routine with looking after your animals and it's a shame because like I really wanted to build that autumnal utopia in Fay Farm but it wasn't fun to do like all of the different (laughs) things like some of the upgrades felt really inconsequential and like by the time you get to the third and final dungeon to play through it's, it's all just so sprawling and and tedious that I found myself just 
just plowing through it as quickly as possible so I could, you know, roll the credits and trade the game in. Like, it's almost like at some point during development, they started to notice the balancing issues. And instead of, if you're an indie company, you can't just have bottomless piles of cash where you can check out, oh, let's just start from scratch again. Let's just rebuild all of the systems to get the balance better. Instead, they just like whacked restrictions on top of things to slow you down or or hinder you, like making the dungeons too hot or too poisonous to be in. So you have to make potions to give you immunity. But making potions means getting ingredients. Getting ingredients means growing or foraging certain plants. And it's not like you ever get to upgrade like your outfit or like your equipment or something to make you permanently Mm. immune to those environments. So you never want to go back to those places if you don't have to. And in those places are all of like the minerals and ores and materials and stuff to make loads of potentially nice things. But then you quickly weigh up, that's not worth the hassle to have, which means you end the game with uh, a whimper instead of a bang and very few nice things. And I was left just with three empty houses, some rundown farms and just a slightly sour taste in my mouth after, you know, a really lovely first dozen or so hours with the game but i haven't said that it's, it's not a bad game it's just an average game yeah i never got yeah. to test out like the multiplayer online side of the game so it's possible that that would have added a bit more dynamism to the game or at the very least populate the world with some people who weren't head smotheringly dull as ditch water to interact with like all of the npcs in the game yeah what have you played properly you alluded to this earlier but again because we haven't recorded in a few weeks would you like to hear the story of how me playing a silly little playdate game was seen by almost 20 million people? Oh yeah, that's happened this last month, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, has, it has. So yeah. for anyone that's not us, because obviously we do talk to each other, just not always on camera, as it were. Picture the scene. I've gone to a gig in London. I've had a nice night on a Friday. I'm staying on a friend's sofa after staying up very, very late. And the morning rolls around. My teacher brain wakes me up at 6am, as is standard. It doesn't matter what time you go to bed. 6am is when you're waking up. And despite me only turning in for the night a couple of hours before, I'm up and wandering about and not feeling very good. Had a few hours of tossing and turning, struggling to get back to sleep. And then after a while, I just sort of cut my losses and thought, fuck it. I'll just, I'll play a few things on the play date, see if it kind of just makes me feel a bit dozy and I'll, I'll try and go back to sleep then. So scrolling through my library, I remember the game Root Bear that you mentioned playing earlier. It is a very simple score chaser, but it's very characterful. It's very immediate. It's very silly. And so I casually think, oh, you know, I, I film little bits for TikTok here and there. So I'll just record a little bit of gameplay footage and pop it up and see if anyone on the platform du jour is going to enjoy that. The game has you pouring drinks for a bear. Each bear customer points to a specific line on a glass and you use the crank to open your root bear tap and fill the receptacle as close to the line as possible. That's it. It's a minute long game every time. You're just trying to get a good score. Land the liquid bang on the line and your quid's in with a nice score bonus. Overshoot the top of the glass and you're rewarded with a comedy screen. Might be a Tom and Jerry screen, might be the Wilhelm screen. You know, you get the picture. And in your 60 seconds, you're trying to pour as many pints as possible. And that's, that's it, really. After I'd filmed my little clip with my phone balanced on my lap and the play date nestled in the duvet I was snuggled under, I put the video <laughs> up onto TikTok. I closed the app. I went back to faffing about trying to get a bit of kip. We, at this point, had had no traction on anything we'd uploaded to TikTok outside of 30 views which every time felt like sympathy views but anyway when i checked my phone half an hour later the tiktok app icon had capped out at 999 notifications so i was like oh this is this is interesting and the clip had to use the parlance of young folk gone viral by lunchtime a few hours later it had been seen by twenty thousand people and again for context nothing we'd uploaded prior to this had hit 
even triple digit viewing figures. We'd never broken 100 views. <laughs> so by bedtime that night, the counter was over 120,000. Yeah. 24 hours later, it was over a million. By the end of day three, it was close to 10 million. It's still drawing views four weeks on, like not yeah. anywhere near as quickly. Now sitting at a nice resting figure of about 18 and a half, 19 million unique watchers. It's ridiculous that that many people have seen my fingers. <laughs> Essentially, over the course of the week succeeding, my phone would constantly sit with the TikTok app glowing with maximum notifications. And the channel grew by every conceivable metric. Writing this now a month on, our followers jumped from around 30, that's three zero, to just under 30,000 as it is now. Our combined video likes is approaching 3 million. Our combined video views is now sat at 23 million across everything we've been uploading. These are pretty absurd numbers off the back of what was just a throwaway gameplay video I recorded on a whim. But what the last month has really highlighted is I've tried to rechase that TikTok viral high because it mm. becomes a sickness after a while, <laughs> is how good a playdate game I think Root Bear actually is. Because with each round lasting just a minute, I do now still frequently find myself playing just a few games here and they're all a little bit longer because the core mechanic of pouring a drink using the crank is immediately readable and understandable. It's really satisfying because you are physically pouring with the crank. It takes a good while before it feels completely natural, but when it does, progression starts to really ramp up nicely because you get more and more likely to pull a perfect pour. And it's art and music do what so many of the best Playdate games do, and that's betray what we perceive to be the limits of the hardware because it's just mm. a one-bit screen. They're one-bit sprites. But there is so much character to the animation of the pouring liquid bouncing around and the bare customers and their faces and everything that things feel a lot bigger and grander than they actually are. You know, the music loops between kind of cool jazz and bossa nova and down-tempo sort of lounge piano. But it all fits really perfectly to give you a space in which to just be and focus. And for what it sets out to do, I think Root Bear might just be the quintessential Playdate game. You know, it's utterly mm. tailored to the hardware. It's really easy to learn, but tough to master. It's replayable, it's addictive, and above all, it's just really fun. It's available for free, indefinitely, basically, they've said as a sideloaded title on itch.io, nice. if you want to not pay them. But it's also recently launched on the Playdate catalogue for, I think, $3. And you should just buy it if you've got a Playdate. I think it's a really good game. It's the type of thing that I think is probably better than Whitewater Wipeout as a as a showcase yeah you know that could have sat in the season easily if it was made at the time and really would have done a similar job just saying here's what this console does that others couldn't because they don't have a crank but it's fun kill a minute kill 10 minutes show it to a friend show it to 20 fucking million people it's just a really good game yeah so anyone out there with a play date it's highly highly recommended we said at the end of our play date season it'd be really interesting to see where the play date is in a year's time you know obviously like the first season of games was something that was considered before people had made the play date and made the play date games yeah so you know all of those first batch of games we were playing were very much testing the waters yeah and now it feels with over 100 games available through the catalog and on the play date it feels like devs finding what the play date's good at yeah. you know yeah and these games that are immediate that are fun that are silly that are interesting but also there's such a variety of games that people are really starting to stretch their creative muscles with what they're asking the play date to do and 
the interest that we're getting with those videos shows the appetite before the play day. And it's really nice because it's rewarding for people like us who invested in the play day to go, no, we believe in this. Yeah. We believe in what it can do and the vision of what it can be. We just need a few more people to, to really jump aboard and to invest in it creatively and see what it can do. And we got a, a note of thanks from the main developer of the play day saying thanks for... Thanks for the traffic. <laughs> yeah, we basically, we drove in that first week something like a 10,000% increase yeah. to the Playdate website. <laughs> so, Mad. Cable Sorcerer, if you want to come on and have a chat, well, we will gladly have you. <laughs> From the one bit to the, probably the highest bit that you can get. <laughs> <laughs> to many bit. <laughs> many bit. The main game that's taken up my time this month is, is one of the few AAA games that I've played full stop certainly on the ps5 that is insomniac's marvel's spider-man's twos the full sequel to their first installment from the ps4 later remastered for the ps5 which i played when it was included in the sort of standalone dlc spin-off miles morales game at launch did it launch was it a launch title for the ps5 yeah there we go but this is a fully fledged sequel to both those games in fact it basically pulls together both of those games because it sees you play as both Peter Parker's Spider-Man and Miles Morales's Spider-Man in a story that weaves in some characters from the first game and uses it as an opportunity to bring a bunch of classic villains into this world. I say a fully fledged sequel, and this is something I'm going to unpack a, a bit as I go on, because I think there's some interesting points to look at when compared with another AAA game released this year, being Tears of the Kingdom. Mm. And I'm going to weigh some criticism at this game that I staunchly defended in Tears of the Kingdom. And that is Spider-Man 2 being set 90% on the same map as the first game and yeah. indeed the Miles Morales game. There is a, is a little bit of an expansion uh, in, the, in the northeast of New York. Uh, they bolted on a little bit of suburban Queens up there to make the map a little bit bigger. Before I dive into this, I will say that this game is astoundingly good, but it is essentially £70 DLC. Yeah. Yeah, And I'm not saying that just because it's set in the same map, although that is part of it, especially as we've already had two games set there. And I know that New York is such a central part of Spider-Man, so it's it's certainly forgiven. But the real criticism is, is that not only is it set in the same location I've already played, but it feels exactly the same to play it. And this is something that Nintendo doesn't do with Tears of the Kingdom, because whilst the topography of some of the world is the same as breath of the wild let's not forget that tears of the kingdom also has the caves the sky the depths to explore in yeah. tears of the kingdom yeah. but because of the ridiculous new mechanics and skill set that link has interacting with those familiar elements on the map from breath of the wild feels entirely new and in fact it even leans into your familiarity with certain places to intentionally subvert your expectations of how to approach it and then gleefully pulls the rug from under your feet on many many occasions whereas swinging through new york in spider-man 2 feels exactly the same as swinging through new york in spider-man and miles morales yeah the good news is that swinging through new york in any of these games is one of the best things you can do in video games <laughs> and it feels phenomenal it feels phenomenal it looks phenomenal it is amazing to play and there are some nice new additions to the movement mechanics to make it even more dynamic in this game, speed things up a little bit. Uh, they've introduced web wings, allowing you to glide around. And there's like some slipstream channels all over the city that you can sort of like steer into and speed you up. And 
Weaving that into the fighting mechanics is as gloriously fluid as it always was. The level of technical proficiency that is in the game to make it feel as fast and fluid as it is, is mind-boggling. Just fast travelling alone is so fast, it literally feels impossible. I don't know how they're doing it. It's staggeringly clever, however they've managed to make it possible. Just look it up on YouTube and just just put Spider-Man 2 fast travel. It's too quick, if anything, (laughs) you know? I I haven't played it, but I've seen, like, whichever Spider-Man you are controlling essentially be hurled across half the map in certain encounters. Yeah. And the game just be like, there you go. Well, we're not going to have to stream any of those textures. They're just there. And yeah. that sort of stuff is... It's generally. just what it feels like. And I, I just don't know how they're doing it because there's going to be some incredible tricks that they're pulling and I really want to know what they are. Yeah. In terms of the combat in the game, Miles and Peter do have different abilities, although using them in reality, it basically all works pretty much the same way. You know, like your L square move probably does vaguely the same thing even if it looks quite different you don't have to worry about learning two totally different fighting styles and then keeping track of which character you're playing as there's some new moves in this game as well to make you more powerful and do more cool things like one of the things this game does that's just again really really clever is make you feel like you're doing a lot more than you actually are. Yeah. Like, yeah. With just a couple of button presses, you can pull off the most incredible combos and special moves and finishes. But it never feels like it's taking control away from you. But you are never in control. <laughs> it's all being put together in reality. Like yeah. it makes you feel like Spider-Man. You know, that's the genius of it. And like all of the the sort of subtle button prompts that you get to use certain moves at certain times basically works like quick time events and and there are even some actual quick time events in there but it just flows so brilliantly together without feeling like you're just press a to do a spider-man yeah even though that is what you're doing the game plays brilliantly at its heart it's still a -a collect-a-thon game which is uh, where most of the fun lies in just swinging about and finding things like little collectibles or puzzles uh, to solve or little mini games or hidden secrets or bonus fights just things to tick off a list it's brilliant And obviously you're playing through a very, very expensively produced new story in the game, which is why I think people are happy to forgive the fact that you are basically playing the same game as before. And as with the first two games, these stories are really well told, really well performed by the voice actors and the motion caption artists and the animators. There are still, for me, too many moments that slow the game down, make you stop and do something tawdry for the sake of having a story beat, which I'd rather they were just cutscenes than boring gameplay. There's a whole dialogue scene between Peter and Harry where you're cycling around New York on bikes, and I think you just have to just tap X or something to pedal. Like, what's the point? If it's going to be that dull to interact with, just make it a cutscene. They do end up using the cycling mechanic for a little side quest later on that turns you into Dave Mira for five minutes. <laughs> for some reason it's like, oh no, my bike's got too much power. It's going fast. Oh, I better use that as a ramp. It's silly. It's almost as a way of just showing off the variety of what's in this game. Like, yeah. Isn't there like a full golf game in GTA 5 or something like that? Yes, I think there is, yeah. There's also, there's a scene at a fun fair where you have to walk around and interact with a bunch of rides and games. Obviously. The only option you really have... <laughs> You go on a ride and then it's like, raise the controller in the air to make your arms go, woo. (laughs) (laughs) That's awful. Yeah. That's very much like Nintendo Wii early days, isn't it? Yeah. I don't mind these things if they're sparsely used, but it it feels like controls being taken away from me too many times when what I really want to be doing is just being let loose and swinging around. I, I think the reason I can be picky about this is that if I want to watch a really good Spider-Man story, 
I've got so, so many to choose from these days. Yeah. So what I really want from this game is to enjoy being Spider-Man, you know, swinging around, taking down bad guys, finding cool secrets, doing little puzzles. But then also the game is splitting your focus between the two different stories being told. You know, you've got Peter's narrative and Miles's one. And speaking of GTA V, which I've, I've never played, obviously that splits the narrative between three different characters, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. That they're all on the same map. And, you know, that approach, it does work. And it does work here because there is obviously a lot of intersecting of the stories and you can switch between Peter and Miles so, so quickly. And there'll be times when, like, you're swinging around because you've seen an icon on the map that you're going to do. And it's like, oh, I think that he, you need to be here as Peter. And you press a button and you are Peter. It's like, yeah. it's nigh on instantaneous. It doesn't really jar when you have to switch. But like, I really appreciate that they went through a huge amount of work to get Miles working as a fun and distinct character in the Miles Morales spin-off. And his abilities really do build on Peter's core set of skills with Miles has got these additional electric powers confusingly called venom powers even though they have nothing to do with the character venom who is also introduced in this game and is also really really fun and yes they do give you a vignette to play as venom and that's great but like even that i mean it's it's playing out story beats that you know we've seen before they switch things up a little bit uh, but it's all obviously pretty familiar honestly like i would have happily just stuck with miles as the protagonist in this game just to keep it a bit more streamlined with like Peter coming in for story beats, you know, joining you for some set piece fights being obviously AI controlled, which does also happen if you're playing as one, the other one might just join in a little scene, but like I can understand the devs wanting to explore as many of the classic Spider-Man stories and villains and all of that in the space that they have to do that. But I'm also not sure if it really feels like it tells a complete story for Miles or for Peter. I mean, it definitely does in terms of like, telling a three-act structure but then there are nuances in their stories that i think you miss by jumping between the two narratives yeah i don't know i I think as soon as i found out that this game was going to be largely set in the same map that i'd already played through twice i was a little disappointed because i knew at its heart it wouldn't feel that revolutionary and i think that is sadly true even though it all feels better and more fluid and more impressive than either of the previous two outings i really wanted something different like if they were going to split the stories perhaps they could have had peter off in london or something and miles on his own in new york but there are some great story beats in the main story that deliver and there are also some tangents that are wonderfully evocative like an incredibly moving side quest seeing the end of a a little storyline that's started in the previous game just about a homeless guy and his pigeons there's also a side quest where you get to play as a character Haley, who's a friend of miles's and she's deaf and you get a chance to experience the world through her eyes and ears. And it's extraordinarily well done. It's not cheap or tokenistic. It's just simply a studio using its vast budget to really diversify storytelling. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it's still really, really great to have a deaf character in there to see people signing and to see also sort of how a deaf teenager would experience life in New York. The way it uses the dual sense controller for some of those bits is really phenomenal. And also... It's probably the only time in life I'll ever say this, but there was a real instance of guns making something much better, which is for the the Mary Jane sections of Spider-Man 2, because there were some sections in the first Spider-Man game where you have to play as Mary Jane and they are bunk. You've got these these stealth sections. They had no place at all. They were horrible. They were torrid. It was really horrible to do. And there was a moment when it just presented me with control of her in a vignette and I was livid. 
But then she picked up a gun, albeit a stun gun. But hey, presto, all of a sudden, she was a lot more fun to play as. Uh, so that was good. I mean, they've definitely got room to do a third Spider-Man game. Oh, There's sure still a really big key villain they haven't used. And it's nicely set up in this game to allow that. But I really hope they branch out a bit more in that game and do something different. But I imagine that they'll do something very, very similar to what they've done with this game. Like they'll probably add an additional New York district, have Green Goblin or Carnage as the big bads, end the game with Peter sacrificing his life to save Miles and pass the baton. And Insomniac will call it the Spider-Man New York trilogy and pave the way to take Miles' story forward somewhere else in later games. I'm calling that right now. Yeah, I think it's a fair shout, to be honest. But what I will say is that the game I'm really, really excited about is Insomniac's Wolverine game Mm. that they're developing. They've said that it's going to be coming out 2025. They've got no need to rush development on it. Like, they've probably got all the budget in the world. It will make all the money in the world. And I think if they do for Wolverine what they did for Spider-Man in these games, then we're in for something absolutely incredible. I just cannot, I cannot wait for it. I cannot wait for it. And honestly, even if they do release a Spider-Man 3 in the same map, I'll get it. Like, I was getting to the point where I was thinking I'd put Spider-Man Remastered on my wish list on Steam because I was like, oh, that'd be really nice to play through it again. And essentially, that's what I've done with Spider-Man 2. And probably in a couple of years' time, when they release Spider-Man 3, I'll probably be going, oh, maybe I should replay Spider-Man 2 and I'll get to play Spider-Man 3. But something to end on. Something that has been quite nice is that Nora, my daughter, has popped into my office when I've been playing Spider-Man because she loves Spider-Man. She's three now, yeah. uh, which is a bit mad. Uh, yes, long-time listeners is. will probably remember me taking my paternity break from the show. And that feels like it was only yesterday. But one thing I will say, she doesn't like Venom. But she found him a bit scary. And to quote her, Daddy, turn him off and bring back Spider-Man, uh, she said. <laughs> Which very successfully (laughs) summarised the entire plot of the game in seven words. So, Insomniac, if you're listening, if you want a story consultant for Spider-Man 3 or Wolverine... Nora's available. I'll I'll happily put you in touch with her. (laughs) So, for me, it's been a bit of an Evercade month. Ah. With a couple new sets arriving recently. Most interesting was Evercade's first single-game cartridge. They've always had at least two games in a few rare occasions and mostly kind of 10 plus a lot of the time but this first cartridge single game on its own full void is a modern cinematic platformer that draws from everything from another world through abe's odyssey right up to kind of limbo and inside and it is the first evercade game to get its own premium cart they're obviously quite happy about this as well because it comes in two flavors you can get the regular edition as well as a very slightly more expensive we're talking like three pounds more expensive kind of boutique release that complements the game with distinct case artwork, special edition, slip case, mini art book, sticker sheet, even a nice blue coloured cartridge, which is unique because they're normally white. It's not a long game, as I was able to kind of roll to the credits in about three or so hours, but it is a really good game and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I played it in one sitting, just sat down and went through it all. It's very, very pretty pixel art. It's got great atmospheric sound design. It's got proper rotoscoped pixel art cutscenes and death animations in the tradition of another world which look great it feels very premium despite coming from a very small indie team you can get it other places it's not an evercade exclusive in terms of where you can play it it's on steam right now for like 13.99 i think at present but it's really exciting to me that the team at evercade are really starting to explore different avenues for what they can do with their little ecosystem because you've now got 
collections of retro home console games, which was always their bread and butter. You've got retro home computer games now. You've got retro arcade games that all have kind of distinct colorways on their cartridge cases. There's also collections of modern homebrew for old computers, old consoles. And with Full Void, there looks to now be further exploration into what sort of native Evercade ports can be marketed and sold to. And I think that's really cool. I think Evercade has had a very strong year in terms of how they've diversified their lineup a bit. And imminently, we have a few more collections on the horizon that I'm very excited about. We've got two packs of Duke Nukem games, which show that the team is now able to approach sort of bigger properties that would have seemed out of reach when they started back in 2020, like in the midst of the pandemic. There's two double packs of high profile kind of modern indie games that if you were to try and buy them separately for their OG platforms, like I think there's a few Mega Drive games there, there's a Game Boy Advance game in one, they'd easily run you like 50 quid a pop. And yet here you're getting them on an Evercade cartridge for 17.99, and that's pretty good. I've slowed right down in my Switch collecting this year, especially because I have to, I guess, be more of an adult at some point. But also because the release schedule on the Switch is relentless now and the number of boutique publishers is silly. Early on, it was a case of the limited print companies would be scrambling for the big name indie releases that were not going to get a box release. Otherwise, let's put something out. Let's print 10,000 copies. Let's have it be something cool. And now you've got a lot of companies putting out the dregs, like the real bottom of the barrel stuff, because there's still this market that I was part of until quite recently that would go, 20 quid for something that's awful? Yeah, sign me up. <laughs> and and now it's like, I think, again, the Steam Deck has broken me a bit because I can look at a game like that and think, but it's 79p on Steam. <laughs> it's it's less than a quid. Yeah. In the sale, it might be 30p. <laughs> I don't think I need to spend 40 pounds on that. But it's still nice for me because I do love physical games that the Evercade is scratching that physical itch. Yeah. Because these sort of quite bargain releases, they're trickling out on average maybe once a month across the year so you can keep up the full set quite easily it's a nice collection to maintain they look really cool on the shelf with their sort of chunky clamshells it's just a nice thing to buy into i still really enjoy it i think full void as a game though comes highly recommended for anyone who likes top tier pixel art for anyone who is looking for a quick game to fill the void left by things like inside limbo or little nightmares if you've played any of those recently like it's it's in those vein for anyone who misses the trial and error gameplay of kind of those early cinematic platformers as well, where death is meant to be kind of mildly frustrating, but really kind of the experience as you're sort of basically doing a gotta catch them all to get all the different deaths throughout the game. Like, oh, I fell in a hole. Oh, I got electrocuted. Oh, I got eaten by a baddie. Because everyone has a nice animation to go with it. So it's something that you can appreciate, even if you're kind of annoyed that maybe you didn't quite make the jump properly. So yeah, I like it a lot. Full Void is cool. Evercade is cool. Around. Destination number two in our world tour, and it's South Korea. Who'd have thought that's where you'd go after going to Denmark? Shall I tell you some things about South Korea before we dive in? Yes, please. There is a museum in South Korea called Poo Poo Land. Oh, I'm going tomorrow. <laughs> it is what it sounds like. It celebrates Genuinely. the people side of life. Yep, and it hosts regular poo parties. Amazing. Instead of the common, how are you, greeting, South Koreans often ask, did you eat rice? Okay. 
It reflects on their culture's general concern for your well-being. The average working week for South Koreans is a whopping 55 hours per week. Jesus. I mean, I do more than that, but... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They also have the world's fastest internet speeds. So, yeah, I mean, imagine how productive they are in their 55 hours. Imagine how efficiently they can procrastinate for such a large portion of the week. (laughs) If they're anything like me. And, of course, South Koreans' biggest export, K-pop, which can only be known as K-pop if it is from the South Korea region. Otherwise, it should technically be known as sparkling NSYNC. <laughs> That's better than last week. <laughs> <laughs> but what has South Korea got in terms of gaming history, Chris? Oh, boy. Gaming in South Korea can be quite tough to pin down because the bread and butter of their industry has been tied so kind of keenly to massively multiplayer online RPGs. For a lot of years. Yeah. Massively multiplayer online RPGs that are either inaccessible to Western audiences due to language or locality, because some games require like Korean ID to even create accounts. In some cases, that means they're inaccessible due to server closures, like in the cases of big names like MapleStory or Ragnarok Online. They just don't exist anymore. Or in other cases, just due to the time and monetary investment required to play and succeed in a game like Black Desert Online or Dungeon Fighter Online, because they are the games that people play and then just play those games. And I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Even for research, I'm afraid you're not getting that out of me. Many of the top grossing mobile RPGs are South Korean developed and are often geared seriously towards the kind of pay-to-win model that afflicts so many player versus player experiences on phones or tablets. That is kind of just where the industry has moved to. And as any regular listeners will know, that ain't our bag, baby. (laughs) But with a little digging... There are a slew of other gaming experiences that do come to us from South Korea. Some of the big hitters first. NeoWiz are one of the big names in both publishing and development. And a recent Jonathan Dunn hit Lies of P that you talked about yeah. just last episode came to us from a pairing of NeoWiz and Round 8 games, which is you know, a South Korean combo. The DJ Max Rhythm Game Series, another reasonably successful Korean export, which I'll be talking about in a bit more detail later, has also at different times been published or developed by subsidiaries of NeoWiz. So there is a connection there as well. It's a South Korean franchise. PUBG Battlegrounds, the Battle Royale game that started life as a mod for hardcore war sim armor on PC. It's now owned and maintained by South Korean developers Crafton after the original lead Brendan Player Unloan Green handed the project over a number of years back. So although it wasn't South Korean by kind of genesis, it is now by kind of maintenance. The Magna Carta series of RPGs, which span three entries across the PC, PS2, and then Xbox 360, were all South Korean developed by a team called Softmax. The Kingdom Under Fire games that I never played, but I remember being a reasonably big deal for being Xbox and then Xbox 360 exclusives at a time when both machines were mainly seen as just cross-platform boxes, were all South Korean developed as well. More interestingly, for me at least, was the revelation that when I started digging into this, there's a lot of series that we wouldn't associate with South Korea, but they've actually had interim entries or sequels or mobile spin-offs developed by South Korean teams. So the iOS and Android version of Nintendo's Dr. Mario was made in South Korea. Metal Slug 4 was South Korean. The more recent Gungrave sequels, which are Gungrave Gore and Gungrave VR, both of which act as continuations of the two very Japanese Gungrave titles on the PS2, came from South Korea. A few King of Fighters entries, specifically 2001, 2002 and All Star, were also developed in South Korea. And even big properties like Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six, the WWE, Mm. some Marvel stuff, FIFA, 
they've had spin-offs, expansions, limited time mobile apps, whatever, developed by smaller South Korean studios. Often it seems to be sort of the country's relationship with online gaming that entices other IP holders to court the services of the country's guns for hire, as it were. But I think there's enough interesting outliers here to suggest that maybe there's some other kind of special source. And I don't just mean gochujang. (laughs) (laughs) It's a Korean source, isn't it? A few indie titles you may have heard of, all of which have been received pretty well over the last few years. Dungreed, Skull, 6180 The Moon, and Pang Your Golf all seem to have their fans. And I've not played any of them, though I'm pretty sure some of them have been sat in my Steam library for years. And they're all from South Korea too. And a game that I know you have played through, and one that has recently done gangbuster numbers across the PC and now consoles, was developed by Soul-based Mint Rocket. The lovely, I assume, because I've not had a chance to play it, really, Dave the Diver. Dave the Diver. It was a moment of lovely serendipity when we recorded our last episode and Chris revealed where we would be going for this episode. As soon as you said South Korea, I literally immediately Googled games developed in South Korea and saw a list of games that largely uninterested me, as you've just highlighted, uh, (laughs) apart from Lies of P. And then I spotted a game that I'd been absolutely gagging to play, which is Dave the Diver, an indie game that had had a huge amount of critical praise and a Switch port had been revealed fairly recently. And so I excitedly checked the Switch port release date and it was that very day. Oh, serendipity. It was downloading before we'd even finished recording. It's mad. It's a game I I would have played this eagerly without this destination at exactly this time. (laughs) So I I feel a bit vindicated for having put 30 hours into Lies of P in the wrong month. Yeah, yeah. So Dave the Diver is a game of two very distinct halves. Dave is a diver and he loves to dive and catch all manner of fish and other things from the waves and the seabed. But also he provides these fish as ingredients for an up and coming sushi restaurant. So the game is split into two very, very different sort of phases. You have the the diving phase, which at first I thought were entirely roguelike. So I thought they were randomized dive sessions. They're not. I just can't remember what a map looks like. Yeah, There is some randomization of like where the items drop and things like that, but it's the exact same layout. But then you can, you can hunt out certain fish. You can go exploring for treasure or collecting items and ingredients to fulfill certain subquests, all while keeping a close eye on your health, your depth, your, your oxygen levels. You can upgrade and unlock all manner of advancements and improvements to make your dives longer and deeper, more dangerous. But it's always fun and it's, it's always, as underwater gaming often is, slightly stressful yeah echo the dolphin (laughs) the scariest game ever made i hate it i'm so glad that the sonic drowning panic music hasn't found its way into the game because that would ruin the underwater serenity somewhat i say serenity and there are some beautiful moments diving in this stunning pixel art it is it's some of the best i've ever seen it's some wonderful moments and you see all manner of sea creatures some only a few pixels high in size but equally as definable as the larger creatures but it can very, very quickly turn decidedly unserene if you pick a fight with a shark or you miss a crucial shot from your harpoon. You see a leviathan chomp its way through your air supply. There's also pirates uh, on your case and causing trouble. Ooh. Not the fun pirates. The oh. proper, like, Captain Phillips, I'm the captain now pirates who are killing little dolphins. Oh. This level of drama does absolutely come as part of the overarching story that's in the game that sees your journey as a diver and aspiring restaurateur evolve. And the characters that you come into contact with develop in complexity and depth. And this game is absurdly well written. It doesn't need to be for how good the gameplay is. But the dialogue is so fun and witty and coupled with 
some of the best, most detailed pixel art and animations for all these characters and little cutscene animations and things. It's it's never not an absolute treat to look at and read. It's extraordinary. Like, I don't really have an idea of how localization works, especially for smaller indie games mm. and especially for games that rely so much on writing and the tone of the writing being intrinsic to the style of the game. Like, Dave the Diver is a really well-written game. It's very witty, but it also feels quite familiar in its tone. Yeah. I don't know how much of that tone is taken into consideration during localization. Like one thing I know about translation from Sammy, my, my wife, who worked for many, many years as a sign language interpreter, is that cultural translation considerations always have to be made. Like, yeah. BSL is an entirely literal language, so they don't have things like metaphors or double entendres or even puns that much. And, like, I know when Sammy was interpreting uh, a pantomime one year and basically had to rewrite 90% <laughs> of the script. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, so, that, like, the jokes would work for a deaf audience. Yeah. So I know that that will be part of the translation process for a localization team. But this game has, has absolutely nailed it. You get to dive during the day. You get a morning dive spell and an afternoon dive with different fish appearing in the different times. And then what of the knights? Oh, Chris, let me tell you of the knights. The knights. The knights see you ditch the scuba and pick up the apron as you put in a shift at the sushi restaurant. Although you do later unlock the ability to go for a nighttime dives, uh, which is very, very cool. But then you do sacrifice half of your restaurant opening hours to do that. But anyway, to the restaurant. First step, choose your menu. And it's fresh sushi, so you need to choose what you plate up based on what you've caught. You can upgrade certain dishes by enhancing them with various ingredients. Usually it's like multiples of a certain fish. So like if you catch like 20 of a fish, you can use those 20 to improve that sushi dish. Then you can upgrade their taste and their profitability and make them more desirable. And then you open the restaurant basically turns into overcooked with a healthy degree of panic <laughs> setting in to serve customers in time, make sure things are restocked and their drinks are being poured properly. Everything is gamified. Like everything is considered and made as fun as possible. Even if it's just having to like grind up a bit more wasabi with the R stick to top that up or pouring the perfect amount of green tea or beer a la root beer. Hey! Get a better uh, social media rating from the customer. It's all very meta for, for what we've been doing for yeah. the last month. You can then apply upgrades to the restaurant. You can unlock more recipes. You can then advertise for and hire staff members to help out in the kitchen or in the dining room. You can train them up to make them more efficient and unlock special abilities that they may have. Like this core gameplay loop is really great. It's really satisfying. It's fun and addictive. But the most incredible thing is then just how much they continue to build on it. Like every time I thought I'd sort of got a handle on all of the different things I could do in the game, it adds in something else like being able to take photos underwater or Ooh. a fish hatchery or a farm or a whole community of people, or an underwater <laughs> village or deep sea zombies. Much like I was saying about Spider-Man earlier, this game has just got loads of games inside it, basically. Yeah. There's fishing and cooking, obviously. There's crafting and farming, but then there's combat. There's full-on boss battles. There's puzzles. There's card games. There's racing games. There's rhythm games. Like, everything you find and pick up on your dives has a purpose too. Like, if it's catching multiples of these certain fish to enhance the core dishes or finding materials to upgrade your weaponry or catching seahorses to race or forgotten treasures to sell, it's just endless. And it's so rewarding. And unlike Fay Farm, they've really got the balance right. So, for instance... 
for your dives, you have certain upgradable things, like I mentioned earlier, your oxygen supply, like your storage, your weaponry, some other mechanics you unlock later. Your oxygen steadily runs out, not too fast, but it does increase if you swim faster. And then that also acts as your health meter as well. So if you get entangled with some aggressive prey, they can take chunks out of your oxygen pretty sharpish if you're not careful. If you run out of oxygen, your dive ends and you only get to take one thing with you that you've caught back to the surface with you. And that is devastating. If you've been on like a long dive, you've managed to kill two sharks. You've found a sunken golden idol in amongst finding a rare seahorse for your race, uh, some cool <laughs> starfish and a spider crab that someone in the village wants. There's also oxygen tanks dotted around the seabed and also giant clams that you can open to release air pockets. But it means that like you're always pushing a bit more and a bit more to maximise your dives because you want to come back to the surface with as much loot as possible. But there's always that threat that if you just get things a little bit wrong, you can lose everything because like yeah. those dives really do count because you only get to do a couple of them a day. But nicely, the sort of the way that time works in the game, it works in like windows rather than as like a continuous ticking timer, which I can definitely do without, especially if I'm underwater and yeah. things are ticking down and I'm dying. So like your morning dive lasts as long as that dive lasts. You don't have a timer. You just have to manage your oxygen, your depth, your storage. Yeah, that's perfect. And you end it at a sensible point before you die. But because of that, you do want to try and get as much as possible in that window so you will want to try and tick off a bunch of side quests whilst also trying to catch some new fish or photograph some rare giant underwater life or catch a certain selection of fish to please a VIP guest that's coming to the restaurant in three days time. There's always so much to do and all of it is so much fun. I'm really quite blown away by this game. It's so polished. It's really nice to look at. It's so much fun to play. The performance on the Switch is decent. Like, it's not perfect, but it, it doesn't impact anything of the game. Sometimes if it gets a little bit busy, you might notice some frame rate drops. But, you know, it's absolutely brilliant. I would really like to play it. It's in my Steam library. Maybe that's a good game to install in the deck now. Give it a go on Do the it. OLED screen. See how it looks. It's been in there. I think I picked it up again. I often see these games kind of get a lot of press and then I see them on sale. And then I'm like, yeah, I'll install that. And then I just never get around to it. But it's in the library. And... That's half the battle. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But no, I think you've, you've really sold me on it because it makes me think of stuff like the rhythm of spelunking in Terraria and wanting to get the most out of each kind of like drop down before we came back to the surface and, and you know, hopefully you didn't die on, on route and lose all your stuff. Yeah. It makes me think of, I can't remember the name of it. There was another game that I played a bit of on Steam that was essentially running a fish restaurant and then fishing but there wasn't enough to it. It's called something Bay, Moon something Bay, Moon Moon Glow Bay. Why not? It sounds like it's got elements of that, but this sounds much better because of the level of variety, because of kind of the additional polish in these kind of different game types, which keep it going and, and keep it kind of interesting throughout. So I will put it on the proper contender to playlist, I think. If it's on the home screen, if I install it and it's there in kind of close close proximity to something else I might go to, there's more chance of me booting it up. So I will definitely put it in the for your consideration pile. It's a lot more welcoming than I've made it sound because yeah. I, I know I've sort of gone on about how much there is in there, but it, the way it paces it out, it's brilliant. It's got a hot recommend from me. Mm. Do you want to hear about one of the most successful series to come from South Korea? Honestly? At least in terms of franchise entries, it has to be DJ Max, 
Its first PC-only entry, DJ Max Online, it launched in about 2004, but it was the portable series for the Sony PSP that really made this previously quite niche South Korean exclusive series start to garner more attention globally. Now, I first came across the DJ Max series when I was at uni. I was stone broke. And I began exploring at the time just how easy it was to hack my PSP to run naughty backup copies of games I didn't own. What a cunt. Because didn't have any money, but I still wanted to play video games. And these days, hacking a device of that sort of vintage is literally as easy as downloading a single file and then clicking the installer. But even back then, it was pretty straightforward. You know, it was an afternoon's work. And then I was messing around with homebrew and backups, chucking different games onto the device to test and play. And basically, and this is the main thing, keeping myself ticking with video games when purchasing stuff at full price just wasn't really possible. Like I remember in my first year of uni buying Mass Effect on the Xbox 360 from HMV when I'd gone to Plymouth for the day. And it really was one of the moments that I was like, I will never financially recover from this situation. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't have any money. What have I done? <laughs> it really yeah. was. And I don't even think I got that much fun out of it. Whereas the stuff I was playing on the PSP, kept me going and then when i was back yeah. home, i was buying games again you know i think people often assume that pirating a game is done purely as an act of like belligerence or defiance just like theft for theft's sake and whilst there obviously are people who will download and hoard games with no intention of ever paying in there's plenty of others who use this as a kind of workaround to feed their gaming appetite when they are just not in a position to pop down the shops and spend 50 quid on a release a few years on i had bought every hard sort of imported copy of every DJ Max entry on the PSP. So I, I feel like I paid my way <laughs> a year or so on because I'd picked up DJ Max Portable, Portable International, Portable 2, Portable 3, the Klazakwai and Black Square licensed entries. And finally... Oh, I had that one. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and finally, DJ Max Fever, which is the one PSP title that did make it to the West that came out in the USA. Every other game was locked to South Korea. So I was importing them at significant cost to get this in my library. But they are all universally great. I don't know what led me personally to DJ Max Portable in the first place on my pirate odyssey. You know, being South Korean, it wasn't really being given any press on the gaming websites I was reading at the time. So I genuinely don't remember how it entered my gaming consciousness in the late noughties. But I have really vivid and fond memories of playing the first entry on my handheld whilst living down in Devon for my degree and kind of like just killing time because there's so much dead time when you're at uni, really. You know, everyone makes out that it's hard to get a degree. No, it isn't. It's not. <laughs> if you've got the money to go, no, no it isn't. And you can borrow no. that. So just go and enjoy yourself. Anyway, I quite enjoyed playing it. The challenge of kind of navigating the small amount of Korean script in the game because generally it's a rhythm game. You don't need to worry about too much else. I just had a bally good time. You know, I was already a guitar hero and rock band veteran at that stage. I played enough other rhythm and rhythm adjacent titles like Parappa and, and Lammy to have a decent understanding of how this was going to work. But even then, it still took me a bit of time to get used to playing a proper hardcore rhythm game like DJ Max. It's like a different tier of rhythm game because it follows in the arcade footsteps of proper stuff like Konami's Bimani stuff like Beat Mania. It's all about building your skill until notes are literally flying at you at terrifying pace. <laughs> it's, it's a series that takes no prisoners. Right? Some would call it hardcore to an absolute fault because even at the easiest difficulty, notes will at first arrive across just four lanes, which you are controlling using two D-pad directions and then two face buttons with the other hand. But by the end of its difficulty zenith, 
the game has eight input lanes which are spread across all of the d-pad and face buttons your shoulder buttons even the analog sticks for kind of special twisty maneuvers and for some it's hell for others it's it's bliss and as much as i see myself as being very good at something like guitar hero my skills did not ever extend quite that far with dj max but i did just really enjoy the challenge it's not an easy game i think it's quite refreshing in the same way that people hold from software games on like a pedestal for owning their difficulty that dj max has always unabashedly been a skill game so there are difficulty settings you know as i described you can have less notes or more notes and you know different modes will ask you to do more with your fingers or less but even at its easiest it's a series about precision and practice and i've always felt that its biggest strength really is just its purity of vision like we talked a few months back about difficulty and accessibility and where those two things kind of intersect. But I think there is something in a game saying there are other rhythm games if you want a different experience, but this is what we would like to do with this kind of core format and formula. You know, if you want a more approachable rhythm game that still offers a decent skill ceiling, there's plenty. You can play the Taiko game, Taiko no Tatsujin, that's on the Switch. Lots of fun. Play at a party, hit the drum, or get better if you want to kind of push it as far as you can. There's loads of predominantly Chinese-made rhythm games on the Switch as well, or on Steam, like Voez, Demo, Muse Dash. I can recommend all of them. They're really good times. But again, they don't push your skills quite as hard as the DJ Max games do. So if you want something to really grind and improve at, I think this series has always been at the top of the pile for me. The music choice here is a South Korean take on basically every Western genre, <laughs> which is quite interesting to listen to as well. So you've got every flavor of kind of K-pop, K-rock, k electro pop k acid jazz k prog there's a couple songs that play with time signatures so it's not a million miles away from kind of like k prog mm. you've got k house k hip hop <laughs> i don't know mm. if these all have kind of that um you know the k prefix but you get the idea that it's stuff that sounds almost familiar but it's got just a flavor of culture that is from somewhere different it's got kind of a different feeling to it and it's an interesting window into i think what the culture and music of south korea was in kind of the mid 2000s before a lot of these things had gone massively global like they have today, because it predates things like Psy or BTS, you know, that have topped the charts worldwide in kind of the ensuing, well, the last decade, certainly. They've been doing big, big numbers. Whereas this was before all that, where it was kind of, I guess, a lot of those artists and producers making stuff that are unfamiliar to me, but it's still drawing from kind of this fusion of cultures all around the world. A real key difference between DJ Max and other rhythm series is how your inputs trigger sound and if you're playing something like guitar hero that i've mentioned basically if you hit the note within a window the sample will continue to play perfectly in time and you get a seamless on-screen performance which i think is why guitar hero and rock band are so successful as party games as well because whether you're playing single player or as a group you could be playing on a really low difficulty someone can walk in the room and you still get like a passable show of the song being performed yeah even if you're just stabbing at one or two buttons in DJ Max, though, the audio sample plays immediately when you hit the button with a percentage grading shown as to how close you were to perfect time. And when you play well, that means songs sound great and luscious because you are building the song with each button input. And it feels really meaningful because it's like, if I don't press it, there is no synth part anymore. <laughs> or if I don't press this sequence, there are no drums. <laughs> and if I do press them late, the drums sound like horseshit. <laughs> But at its worst, though, when you're struggling through a harder song for the first time or when you first jump up to kind of a, a higher number of buttons for your, your difficulty, it can sound a fucking mess because when you hit the button, that's when you're going to hear the sound. So fluff the note, yeah. it's going to sound shocking. And this really leads me quite nicely to the last major point here about how 
accessible the OG sort of DJ Max games are in 2023? The short answer is that they are not <laughs> really at all. <laughs> Uh, the long answer is that if you've got an actual PSP and a copy of any of these six or seven entries, you're fine. Enjoy it. You know, pirate them if you have to. It's going to be fine. But if you're trying to play via emulation, you're going to have a bad time because as no matter how much you tweak your settings or what kind of overpowered gaming PC you're using to run it, a tiny bit of input lag or audio delay will just destroy the game because it's so hard synced to like, mm. this is the refresh rate of the PSP. This is when we expect you to hear the note. This is when we expect you to press the button. And if you're off that even a tiny bit, you're going to have a bad time, sadly. It's not a total bust, though. If you've got a decent PC, if you've got a PlayStation uh, 4 or 5, DJ Max Respect is the most recent DJ Max entry that is still receiving like monthly DLC and support. It's available on Steam, it's available on the PlayStation Network, or you can import an expensive disc copy if you want to for the PS5. Plays very nicely. There's plenty of in-game options to tweak latency to suit your TV and hi-fi or soundbar or whatever you're using to play it through. And it's a real greatest hits package of most of the old songs from entries past, but also now a big repository of kind of new music exclusive to this game as well. My Steam install with DLC is now approaching like Fiat Rhythm levels of content. I've got probably four or (laughs) 500 tracks in there that I've bought over the last few years. There's stacks of unlockables. There's a mission mode. There's a ridiculous amount to do if you want to get really stuck in. It's really good. But again, another caveat that makes this slightly harder to play than it should be. At present, the game does not run properly on the Steam Deck, and it makes me sad every time I check in. For a long while, it's because it's got kind of an anti-cheat thing built into it. So you need an online connection, which is not the end of the world if if you have to have it. But it means that the Steam Deck running through its like Linux compatibility layer would just trigger the anti-cheat every time. So the game would just boot you out as soon as you got to the menu. That's been fixed. Great stuff. So I installed it excitedly, all like 120 gig of it (laughs) a few months back. And as head tinkerer, I was like, here we go, here we go, I'm going to get it to work. And I don't know what the issue is, but there is something that means that performance can be so hit and miss that sometimes it's blazing fast. And one patch of the game, you'll be getting 200 frames per second. And then the next week, you're in the 20s and the game is absolutely unplayable. And it's really depressing now because with the OLED and its higher refresh rate and its lovely screen, this should be where I'm playing the game. You know, it was always a handheld game when I had it on the PSP. This is where I would like to play dj max respect and over the last year or so patches keep coming in and out that will basically phase the game in and out of being verified on steam deck i really really hope that in the not too distant future either NeoWiz as the publishers or whoever's kind of like shepherding the, the series at the moment will sort that out or valve will support or someone will get this stuff working because it does have a big audience on steam yeah. but the deck is just not quite the place to do it on at the moment it does go on sale most sales so i, I would say to people if you like the sound of it if you go god i'd really like a hardcore rhythm game i'll just be playing on my lovely pc so i don't need to worry about the steam deck stuff wait for the next sale like i think in about january time is the next big steam sale kind of the winter one and even if you're not buying the full package the core game will go down to like eight pounds or something like that even if you buy it as a speculative purchase for the future i think you can have a good time if you enjoy rhythm games it's it's a particular sort of flavor it kind of draws from a culture that is still quite unfamiliar to most of the world, but it's still really interesting to kind of pick through and hear what they've got to offer. And I just, I really, really love it. Well, there we go. That's South Korea. Yeah. Do you want to know where we're going next? Oh, I really do. I really do. We are going, Christopher, to the land of windmills and tulips. We're going to the Netherlands. Oh, lovely. And there are some superb games from there, yeah. such as the modern Tomb Raider games, the Lara Croft spin-off games, the Deus Ex games, Horizon, Horizon Forbidden West, 
Rusty yeah. Lake games, Minty's favourites. I've played through about nine of them in the last month. Wrong month. <laughs> Again. Yeah. Mobile games such as Ridiculous Fishing. A couple of games that I played on the 3DS, Edge and Prown Plus. Yes. Yeah, I love that game. And also one of your favourites, Super Crate Box. Oh, I, w- I won't just talk about that for an hour, I promise. But I will definitely be mentioning it. So there we go. That was our second destination in our Around the World in 80 games. It was South Korea. Oh, I mean, so many amazing things amazing things and amazing things in store in the netherlands oh i can't wait i cannot wait if you've played any games from south korea tell us please do chat to us on social media tell us what you're playing if it's from south korea brilliant if it's from the netherlands brilliant if it's from somewhere else tell us anyway at o3c games and join us in the discord we just we'd love to hear from you love to hear from you if you've got any suggestions of destinations you want us to visit or games you want us to cover from certain destinations, then please do let us know. We are all ears. We will not book the next flight until the next episode. Having said that, the next episode will not be the Netherlands because the next episode coming to you on the 1st of January 2024. End of year seasonal special. We're going to be telling you all about uh, our favourite gaming moments from the year. We're going to be awarding our game of the year. It's going to be a great celebration of the year that was 2023. Yes. We'll see you then. And then 1st of Feb, we'll tell you all about the Netherlands. Yeah! Bye.